one part of your story starts on October 26th, 1973, in a police station in Seoul, Yangdongpo. You were found there abandoned, wearing red pants and barefoot. What can you tell us about this time, this experience? Uh, how does your story begin, Young Hee? Um, well, uh, to be honest, I don't have any memories of my time in Korea. Um, I don't actually even remember the airline flight from Gimpo Airport to John F. Kennedy Airport um, in 1974. Um, so the, the place where we're starting, October 26, 1973, mm. um, I was found on the street in Yongdeong-po by a police officer. Um, I was wearing red pants, and I don't know that I was barefoot necessarily, but I think I was wearing socks but no shoes. Mm. Um as I understand it, um, well, a few people have have suggestions of what they think may have happened. Mm. Um, one Korean friend of mine got the impression from my paperwork, the Hanja that's written on there, that I was wearing knitted red pants and bosan, which are indoor socks without shoes. Mm. Um, another friend thinks that it's likely that I got got lost or wandered off. Um, because as if, if I were an intentional abandonment or relinquishment, that would likely mean preparing the child by fully dressing her and even attaching a note maybe that states the child's name and date of birth and a plea to please take care of her. And I didn't have any of those things. Um, I personally think I got lost or wandered off um, since I didn't have shoes and it was the end of October, it would have been cold. Mm. Um, so it makes more sense that I would have wandered off on my own rather than an adult just sending me out that way. Um, when there's also a social study performed by the adoption agency I was adopted through social welfare society um, that noted that I cried when getting scolded for going out of my foster home without permission. Mm. So <laughs> that may establish that I had sort of a pattern of leaving without permission. Uh, how have you come to understand this information? Have you spoken to the the, the police station or I mean you said yourself you have no memories of it so how have you come to to, to garner that information young he? right um, I've done a lot to search and so I've spoken to I've made many friends along the way um, mm. both Korean uh, Korean people and um, adopted people mm. and um, these are just suppositions that they've given me based on like the picture and the Honda that was written in my file um, um, it's, I, I really, like I said, I don't have the memory, so I don't know for sure. Mm. Um, but they're just best, ge best guesses based on the information that I do have. Um, I, when I, the first time I went back to Korea in 2012, mm. that was the first time since I was adopted and I was so, so nervous about getting lost. So I think that was something that was deeply ingrained in me from an early age. Um, mm. so I suspect that I, that I was lost. Yeah. For, I guess, for people listening, Hanja would be the Chinese character. So in, in Korea, we use the Korean language Hangul, uh, and, and we also use Hanja. That was more common, I guess. Uh, it's, you know, especially for names or official documents, people would yes. use the, the, the Chinese characters. Um, your, your instincts tell you that you were lost rather than uh, perhaps abandoned. I guess... Uh, the reason why that's important, I think, is because there were 
I, I'm not sure on the exact statistics, but there were quite a few children that were abandoned or, or taken to police stations, right? Um, so we so we think it's it's hard to know what the truth is. Yeah. Um, I have met a, a very common backstory for Korean adoptees um, is for their paperwork to say that they were found uh, on the steps of City Hall or on public transportation, like on the train or a bus hmm. um, or found on the street like myself. Um, and that's not to say that wasn't ever the case, but I have met some adoptees who did find their biological families and it turned out that was completely fabricated. Um, so there is a possibility that it was, that it was made up. Mm. Um, in my case, since I think I was lost, um, and there's very few documents in my adoption file, I think I was just in fact lost and they didn't, they didn't bother creating, you know, fictionalizing a story because they could just use what was there in my case. Mm. Um, you've said, um, th this took place in 1973, uh, which yes. is, you know, still what that's like eight years before I was born. And even <laughs> I consider, uh, I was going to say, even I consider myself old, but that wouldn't be perhaps polite. Uh, what I would mean to ask you here, young he, what I'm trying to ask respectfully is what do you know about the kind of socioeconomic environment we're talking about because I, I this story definitely takes place in a real time in a real place in Seoul so what do you know about the background or the the relative affluence or lack thereof of the area or um to be honest not a whole lot um in the 1970s Korea I have a Korean neighbor that used to live near me mm. um who grew up in Korea and, and she told me that at that time Korea was actually doing okay. Not great, but it wasn't quite the war-torn, ravaged city that it was back in the 50s and part of the 60s. Mm. Um, Korea, um, it, in Seoul anyway, was one of the more metropolitan areas. They had, for example, a, plane, a, a train, and it was common for families that were going to abandon their children to take them to bigger cities like Seoul in hopes that um, the police or the adoption agencies would would in fact find the children in the orphanages. Mm. Is there an element? Uh, so I guess I'm jumping to a different part of a story here. Is there an element that your your family was based outside of Seoul? This was a day trip into Seoul, or based in Yangdungpo? Do you have any idea about that, Young Hee? Um, I I don't know at this point. Um, mm. I I have some information from my father, but he was not with my mother at the time that I was born and when she raised me. So I don't I don't know those pieces of my story. Right. Um, after being found uh, in or around a police station, October 26th, 1973. And again, you don't have any memory, but I'm just trying to see how much of the story is being pieced together. You're taken to a Red Cross establishment. You spend a year or so there. Um, actually, it was just a few days. So oh, okay. It was a it was a temporary missing children's reception center that was set up, and as far as I understand, there was quite a few of these, not necessarily by the Red Cross, mm. but there were quite a few temporary shelters that were set up for missing and lost children. Um, I I was found on October twenty sixth, nineteen seventy three, but I wasn't actually entered into the intake paperwork at the Missing Children Center until October 29th, 1973. And I'm not sure where I was mm. for those three days in between. I think one of the things that surprises me so much about this story, Young He, is that 
however it comes about you're found around this police station but then after a certain amount of time you're you're marked for international adoption by the social welfare society sadan bobin their hands how it like this seems a very quick decision that you know you you have a missing child or you have a lost child or you might have a child that's been placed in uh with a police station but then to go from that to be fl flagged or marked for international adoption that's a very interesting part of the story isn't it or a very shocking part of the story um yeah it, that was very quick i just want to point out that i wasn't actually sent for overseas adoption just yet it wasn't till about a year later okay but the fact that they flagged me i think implies that i was uh, uh, up to a certain level of good health um and that i was advanced enough in my development that i could go to a foster home and spend time with them and and become potty trained and learn how to feed myself mm. um things of that nature and also to to gain a, a, a reasonable amount of weight so i was somewhat healthy when I went to the United States. Mm. Do you know anything about that year? Were you with just like in, in Korea before you went to the United States? Were you with one family? Were you in sort of like a, an institution or a, a home? I'm not sure of the right words. Forgive me. Sure. That's fine. Um, I was with a foster family. There yeah. was a mother that stayed home and a father who I think worked in an office and there were some other children there as well. I'm not sure if they were the biological children or other foster children. Um, they, there's a social study in my mm. adoption paperwork, which is the social worker from my adoption agency observing me in the foster home and taking notes on my development, um, how I interacted with other people in the foster home, how I was eating and sleeping, things like that. Um, and, uh, that seemed to, that she seemed to imply that I was adjusting well, um, and was on track for going to a home in the United States. It's quite nice of the foster family. <laughs> it makes me think like, um, but, you, but you did eventually go to the United States, Young Hee. Now, my very yeah. first guest on this podcast was uh, Dr. Lee kyung uh, and she worked for the United Nations, the South Korean government. She's a specialist on the idea of international adoption. She's been very critical of, of, of South Korea for how she describes it as essentially giving up their children, sending them overseas rather than uh, dealing with it internally. Uh, and of course, there are many factors and it's a very complex story. But do you have any take on the fact that you were sent overseas? And, it, you know, many South Koreans were sent overseas during this time. Um, well, I, I understand, you know, with the ravages of the war that they didn't have money for social welfare programs initially. Mm. But by the 70s, as I understand it, um, things were okay. And um, it is disappointing, it's, it's shameful that the Korean government didn't put social welfare programs into effect. And, and as I understand it, they're still not that great today. Mm. Um, I do feel the Korean government needs to step it up and take care of their more marginalized populations, such as single mothers, and young children and the elderly and the disabled. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the research on that subject seems to indicate that it's not so much economic, like the number of children being sent abroad rose at the same time the Korean economy was rising. So it was mm -hmm. more related to uh, social stigma 
or elements of shame or people being unwilling to raise children out of wedlock, that kind of that seems to drive a lot of the conversation uh, with the data. Yes, that's correct. Um, before you were adopted by a family in the United States, you were given a name and a date of birth here in South Korea. Uh, you, you know, whenever we go on planes, visas, all of these kind of things, <clears throat> we use our name, our date of birth. How do you feel about the name that you were given during this situation? And I guess the date of birth as well, like Kim Myung-hee, have you come to accept it as your own? I, I'm just trying to empathize and, and try to understand what it must be like to know that the names were given in that kind of process. Um, not not really. I I spent most of my life thinking that that was a name that my family had given me. And I actually came to find out in about 2012 mm. um, that it was a name that the adoption agency or the orphanage, excuse me, came up with. Um, and it was just something you know, it was very common to be named after the orphanage director, for example, mm. um, or have names picked out of a, a Korean names book <laughs> for children. Um, so I, I don't have any real attachment to it. I um, the interesting thing is lately with being in contact with my father's side of the family, they call me Kim Young Hee. And so it's be become more I'm getting more used to hearing it. Mm. And um, I, I guess I sort of relate to it a little bit in that regard, um, but it's not, I, I, I still hold out for the day when we can hopefully find my mother and she can give us the missing pieces, such as what my name was when I was born. Um, and, and I would like to change it back to that. There's a huge period of time between, let's say 2012, when you discover that your name was given by this establishment and, and 1973, how and when did you come to understand your story? Was it like in your teens? Was it your 20s? How did that all play? How did that all come uh, to light for you, Young here? Um, my adoptive family was very open about my adoption. So I knew about that from the start. Mm. Um, I was free to look at my file. So I you know, would look over the documentation that accompanied me to the United States. Mm. Um, I... I, I was, um, for most of my life, I was sort of in, in a fog about my Koreanness mm. and my place in the world as an adoptee. Um, it wasn't really until about my 30s after I'd gotten married and was pregnant with my first child that I had my, my first reckoning, if you will. Um, and I started really exploring like who I am and where I came from. Um, adoption for a lot of people is um, sort of something that you learn to bury um, because it's associated with loss and you know losing your family and and losing everything that's familiar. Um, so people, so adoptees um, tend to bury that and then just dive right into their new life in America or Europe or wherever their second family mm -hmm. has brought them um, and to, to assimilate as much as possible. Um, sorry, <laughs> I, got, I got a little off track there. No, no. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it's incredibly 
brave. I have a, a huge amount of respect for, for being able to look at that part of your story because it must be incredibly difficult. It, it, I have two young children myself and, and the idea of becoming a parent, I mean, it's a, it, it's a pivotal moment when you question who you are, what's going on, how life is made even, and what's going on in this existence of, of life that we do. So it was becoming a mother yourself, I guess, that really, is that right, you think, Younghee? Um, both getting married, I got married a little on the late side, and then also Me being too. pregnant with my first child, <laughs> being pregnant with my first child. Um, uh, for the wedding, for example, we were planning like um, who, who, what guests were going to be there for the bride and the groom side, and um, my adoptive parents had been divorced for a long time, and I didn't know if they would both come, for example, so my side was looking kind of light. <laughs> Um, it, it just got me wondering all kinds of things, uh, and also having my first child or, or being in the process of growing my first child, mm. um, just wondering, you know, that would I ever look into another face that looked like mine, um, that this would be my first blood relative that I knew of, mm. for example, things like that for a lot of adoptees, big life events, sometimes going off to college, for example, maybe meeting like other Korean other Korean or other Asians for the first time is um, the big catalyst for uh, for sort of waking up and in delving into our past lives. Do you, how many children do you have, young Himal? Sure, I've got two. My son is ten and a half, and my daughter is about to turn thirteen. Wow, uh, my two a little bit younger. They're they're six and seven. Do you have any oh. advice for? having children as they approach teenagers. What have you learned about having two kids like that, Youngie? Um, let them talk as much as they want. <laughs> Sometimes kids can paddle on and on, but let them talk yeah. because then they're more likely to come to you when they have the big things that they want to discuss and they know that they can come to you, that you'll listen and they'll be heard. I, yeah, I believe that's very true because sometimes kids will talk and talk and it's, it's sometimes <laughs> not that interesting. You have to be a good parent and smile. <laughs> that's very, very real. Um, you you just said there, Young He, this idea of, um, I, I forget the exact word, but it was like sort of waking up or coming to acknowledge your identity and things like that and your situation. You've spoken in some interviews about your, your Korean blood and heritage and that despite your American nationality and I guess white middle-class upbringing, there's still part of you, maybe more than a part that knows it's Korean. Like in Korean, there's very much this sense of kind of Uri, which is we, or this kind of Tanil Minjok, this kind of one blood, one Korean family. Can you try to convey this feeling to us or explain it, please, this idea that you, you feel Korean or there's this pull towards your Koreanness? Um, well, a big part of it was um, as an adoptee, a transnational and transracial adoptee, I don't look like the family that adopted me. Mm. Um, and so all my life, uh, and especially when I was young, uh, people would make comments reminding me the fact that you don't look like your family. So mm. it's hard to ignore the fact that I have an Asian face, even if even if my family may be white or black or Hispanic. Um, and that was a big disconnect. Mm. So over the years, um, I mean, you, you just can't get away from it. There, there, there's always a sense of being othered and people will reminding you, um, you don't belong here, you're a foreigner. Um, and that's really hurtful to hear growing up. Um, but what that taught me was that 
I'm not actually, I didn't completely assimilate into the culture that I was adopted into. Um, I, um, a lot of adoptees when they're younger wish that they were like their families and, and could look like them and blend in. I understand that. Um, mm. but I just, I never did. So, um, it just comes to a point where you realize that one day and either you deal with it or you just continue to bury it. I think one of the reasons I have incredible respect for you, young here and other people in similar situations is that we know in society at school, at high school, sort of this idea of it's, it's bullying, but it's also othering and this idea of comments and things that go on. But many people would still have, you know, they'd go home to their family and they would find some kind of solace. Uh, but in your situation, you have a family, absolutely. But still recognizing yourself to be, you know, you use the words uh, transnational and transracial adoption. So that adds this whole other layer to this, you know, to this experience, which it blows my mind to think that people go through that. Um, what was it like, Young He, searching for answers in terms of getting records from Seoul? So you're, you're based in the United States and you want to try to get information from Korea. Um, you know, doing my research, it says like from 2008, um, you get records from the city of Seoul. Um, what was it like dealing with South Korea in terms of getting this information? Was it easy? Was the language a problem? Were they very efficient? Was it done by fax? Or how did that play out, Younghee? Um, language was definitely a big hurdle. Um, a lot of agencies uh, in the early 2000s even didn't necessarily have websites mm. um, that were navigable by somebody who's English speaking like myself. Um, uh, for the most part, trying to contact agencies was really difficult because there's only a phone number and I can't, of course, speak Korean or understand it when it's spoken to me. Um, I did have Korean friends along the way that encouraged me to contact like the mayor of Seoul. Mm. Um, and he, he just turned out to be a really receptive person. Um, there was a website, a Seoul municipal website where you could, you could email the mayor. <laughs> um, and it was, it was surprisingly easy to do at the time. And I was really not expecting a, a, a reply from him, but he did reply back to me with the basic information of where I was found and what I was wearing. Um, but since, but since then, and at many, many other agencies, it's extremely difficult to conduct a search. Um, people just don't get back to you. Mm. Records haven't been digitized. There's the runaround. Some people are told that their file, that their adoption files were burned in a fire. Um, or that they've been stored in a warehouse and they don't know where they are. Um, I've what really helps a lot is to have a Korean speaking friend who can make calls for you. Mm. And I've been really fortunate in that regard. That's fascinating, Young I never knew that you got your information and it came from Seoul City Hall. Like so you emailed that I, I'm not sure if you know, was the mayor at the time Park Wonsoon? Park Wonsoon or maybe Ose? Oh, 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 he was in charge at the time. He's the current, mm -hmm. he's the mayor again now. Again. Yeah. And so that, that came from the mayor's office. The, the first time you understood about the Yongdon Po story and the red pants type thing. Yes. That's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, you find it, but to have it come from such a, an established body, I, I think that must be quite pleasing. I don't know. I, I, what was it like getting it from the mayor's office? 
it was encouraging to know that there was an official mm. record of me that I that I existed and um, you know was was someone mm. in in Korean society. I I wonder and and forgive me if my questions are not appropriate, but I wonder sometimes is there this element of you don't want to know does that ever come like so you're getting this answer and and there it's going to give you maybe this email or this letter is going to have some information is there ever any part of you that like questions do i really want to know this like is does that ever come into it because i feel like for myself you know what if it's a bad story or what if i get the information and nothing changes does that does that play into it at all young here um i'm sure for some people but for me i want to know the truth um good or bad i i want to know the truth and i want to do everything i can to search for my family um because i just don't know what happened mm -hmm. if i was lost the idea that my family's been missing me grieving me all these years they deserve closure to that and mm -hmm. i deserve closure as well so it's it's important to me to find out the truth i want to be as authentic as possible and and understand my origins very well said um you've you've done quite a bit on korean media the korean media has picked up your story and, and this includes sort of newspapers television radio um how do you feel about the korean media's presentation there might be a language barrier i guess but you, i'm sure you have some sense of it how do you feel about how the korean media has presented your story and what's been your experience with this kind of television and news that's gone on um, I think it's been pretty positive and I feel like I've been very fortunate. I haven't had to um, do anything particularly dramatic um, to, to get into the eye of the media. Um, I, I was warned by some adoptees uh, that some television networks will try to play up the emotional factor um, for their viewership, which I understand, mm. um, but I haven't actually run across that myself. Um, I... I, um, I actually have a couple of upcoming events that are going to be airing on television. Um, one's a documentary. Mm. Um, they'll be following me around in Korea in the fall. And then I'm going to be appearing on an SBS program as well. Um, so I look forward to working with them. They, they usually have translators. And mm. I've got a very good friend who translates for me on my end. She lives in the United States. Um, and I, um, I don't know, I, I feel pretty good about it. I, there, there aren't a lot of options in terms of how, to, how else to find my family. Mm. So I'm, I'm willing to put myself out there and step outside of my comfort zone to do what it takes to try everything I can. I think it's quite, I, I think it shows South Korea's development that the major news and media networks are willing to go with this story because you know, it's possible it could show Korea in a bad light. And a lot of the time they've been trying to promote themselves as a certain nation. But I think now that they're doing these stories is is possibly, you know, a good thing. Um, you mentioned a couple of times this idea of speaking to other adoptees. Um, I've spent some time, I, I think, with the increase in Hallyu and Korean like success abroad, more and more people are they're trying to find out about their Korean origins. And, and, and so I've, you know, spent time with these kind of people. One is a, a psychologist based in Sweden now, and, and she's going through a similar uh, experience. For the community, Young He, of people that, Koreans that have gone through uh, 
transnational adoption is there a community is there a shared experience is there like this collective understanding or is every situation individual and unique um definitely individual and unique but there is a shared community um on facebook there's mm. a large international population of korean adoptees um, and several large adoptee groups um, that people, first they'll find the, the large adoptee groups and we'll have a general introduction. It may start kind of light, just talking about Korean cooking and you know, K-pop in a movie or something. Yeah. Um, but there's people that want to delve into deeper, deeper topics um, such as depression and identity. Um, and those groups, there's tons of subgroups that have filtered off in just about every interest mm. from, you know, adoptees that play guitar to to photography and the, learning the language um and there's i think pretty much something for everybody or at least the opportunity to create something if, if you haven't found your niche have you been quite prominent in those groups have those groups helped you or what's the kind of size i mean having never seen any of them myself i'm just trying to get an idea they have various interests but like the size of them or the role that they can play in people's lives or um, absolutely. I, I think um, it's they try to make them um, out to be sort of safe spaces. Mm -hmm. So that's a good way to sort of like stick your toes into the water and get a feel for things. Mm. Um, you can make it as light or deep as you want to. If you, as, um, It's common for adoptees to get together in, in similar regions, um, get together for a meal. And it, it might be something that's social and kind of light. Um, some adop adoptee groups have organizations have formed um, where they hold panels and have conferences and lectures and they talk about more of the um, the deeper issues such as uh, you know international adoption mm -hmm. um, the psychological effects of it um, your identity and so on um, so there really there's there's something for everybody I back in the early let's see 2000s um, there wasn't much online, but there was a Yahoo group for Korean adoptees. And I was a little bit active with that, although not, not super active, um, mm. but that was my first foray into the online community. In about 2009, I joined Facebook. Um, and I don't know if I just did a search one day, I don't recall, um, and just looked up to see what Korean adoptee groups there were. Um, but there's a handful of them that are pretty big. We're talking like five or six, 7,000 people in them. Wow. Um, yeah. And adoptees from all over the world. Um, and it's really a great way to, you know, when you first get in there, it's like, wow, there's somebody that's like me. But over time, you realize, just like any other population, we all have so many differences um, and individual mm. needs and, and, and interests that it um, that it that it's just, you know, not it's not there's not something um it's not for everybody, I guess. Some people don't want to delve into mm. issues of identity and so on. And that's okay, too. Um, some people have had really wonderful adoptions, and that's fantastic. Um, and, but not everybody has. So it's, it's an interesting cross-section where people can discuss their differences, sometimes emotionally, mm. um, discuss their differences and also share their similarities and to sort of um, just um, delve into all things that are Korean and you can work at your own pace. Mm. I would, you know, apart from talking to you and a couple of other people, I, w I would never have any idea that such groups existed. And so I guess my, my next question, Young, he would be 
for people outside of these uh, transnational Korean adoptee groups, people such as myself, is there anything that people often get wrong about that community or mischaracterize? Is there sometimes like language that's used incorrectly or misconceptions or things that are done badly, things that could improve that perception of that group? Young here, I'm asking about from people outside of it. Um, I think one of the common misconceptions is that if you had a negative adoption experience, that you hate adoption, you're against adoption. Mm. That's not that's not always true. Um, there's there's really there's everybody's situation is so different, mm. um, and there tends to be a polarization between those that are for adoption, those that are against adoption, and, and it really doesn't need to be like that. Um, I, I think we can see a lot more unification in that regard. Um, for me, for example, my, my adoption was less than ideal, um, but I feel like in some circumstances, adoption is called for and it can work. There are, there are some amazing families out there that have adopted and, you know, I applaud their efforts and I'm, I'm glad that they were there for those kids. Um, but there's also a lot about adoption that's, that's troublesome um, and not above board or transparent. Mm. Um, and and that needs to be rectified especially when it's international i guess as well because that adds that whole other layer to it doesn't it with this. um well there's that the, the concern is is it actually for the welfare of the child or is it to meet the needs of parents who want it who want a family a certain mm. family that they envision um and the problem is there's so many children that are in adoption in the foster system that don't have homes what what's going on with them I mean, if you're waiting for a specific child that meets a certain definition that you have in your head, that's more about fulfilling your own needs than trying to help a child that's already out there and needy. needy. Yeah, I'd, I'd never even considered that before. Um, Younghee, you, you just mentioned you're, you're coming to South Korea in the fall. Um, I, I guess this is jumping from adoption to, to one of the, the turning points of your story, but you you discovered your father. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. How, how does that part of the story play out? I mean, because from 1973 until, I guess, quite recently, it's a huge period of time. And then you, you eventually discover your, your, your biological father, your Korean biological father. How does that part of the story play out, Younghee? Um, last year in uh, May... I, first of all, I have my DNA registered as many places as I can reasonably have it registered. Mm. I'm registered with all the big DNA companies in the United States, 23andMe, Ancestry, and Family Tree DNA. And then there's also some other websites where you can transfer your DNA um, data. So you'll be in other databases as well. I'm also registered with Korea National Police Agency Missing Persons Database in Korea. Mm. Um, the problem is none of these databases are connected. So the only way you can really cover your bases is to be in every database. Mm. Um, and that is really important because there have been situations where um, an adoptee, if they hadn't tested at one particular uh, company, would have missed out on a match um, mm. to, to close family. Um, so, so last May, I got an, a notification, email notification that I had a second cousin match come up on Ancestry.com. And I was actually a little surprised because at the time, um, Ancestry didn't, didn't have that many Korean people in the database. So I, I didn't expect a lot of, um, of results from, from Ancestry at, 
previously. Mm. Um, it turned out that he was a 21 year old male who's a quarter Korean um, and a second cousin of mine and actually lives not far from me. And so we chatted online for a while and I told him about my backstory um, and he put me in touch with his mom who's on Facebook. I was able to find her on Facebook and she and I compared DNA. His mom is half Korean and she came back as a first cousin. So we we're getting a little bit closer um, to fitting the pieces together. Um, her mom is full Korean. Mm. Um, so the young man's grandmother is full Korean. Um, and with some time, we were able to encourage her to compare DNA with me as well. And she came back as my aunt. Now, initially, she's kind of blown out of the water about that, I think. She talked to her family and yeah. Um, and was like, we're not missing any children. <laughs> Nobody gave anybody up. Um, and that's understandable. I, 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 on this side of things, have been searching for a while. So this, you know, I'm kind of aware as new developments come up. Mm. Um, but for people who are being approached uh, with, with the fact that, um, hi, I'm part of your family, <laughs> it's kind of surprising. Um, well, she did talk to, she's got three old, um, excuse me, two older sisters and three older brothers um, wow. that live in Korea. And she talked to them and it turned out that my father had gotten a young woman pregnant back in the early 1970s. And so they had a hunch that that was me. So that brother, the youngest of her three brothers, and I compared DNA and it came back as a child parent match. And that's how I found out my, that my father was my father. So from a young 20 year old ancestry.com cousin, you traced it all the way back through there through, how does, how does the DNA, like, I, it, it's probably very simple, but I have no idea. How do you, like, submit your DNA or register on these things? Like, how does that work? Um, the most common way that it's done is by through um, is by saliva collection. Okay. And they send you a little kit and there's like a plastic test tube and you have to make yourself salivate <laughs> and, and, and collect enough. Sometimes they do um, mouth swabs where they'll run it on the inside of your cheeks. And sometimes they'll do blood tests or hair tests. But the, the commercialized ones in the United States tend to be saliva. It's quite interesting that something so powerful can be done so simply. Like you, would, yeah. I, I always imagine you have to go to hospitals and do all these things, but it's just, it's just that. What I've found fascinating is that in the U United Kingdom, where I'm from, and perhaps parts of the United States as well, where you are, that this idea of ancestry and finding out lineage became very popular on British television. We had all these celebrities going in and finding out they're, they're quarter Jewish and half German and all of this, but it never became popular in South Korea. I think there's this idea no. of that one nation. You don't want to find out you're a little bit Chinese or Japanese because it kind of, you're meant to be full Korean the whole time. Right. There's a strong sense of nationalism and it was a closed society for so long. Yeah. Um, and then with the importance of patrilineal bloodlines, um, the purity the purity of your Korean bloodline is really, really important and it still is today. We got to, yeah, I, I agree. We got to the part, sorry, where I, I lost track with a saliva test. We got to the part where you found your father. Um, what was it like when that information came back? And, and do you, have you contacted him via email or, or how was that part played out? The contact now with your father, young he? Um, I was pretty excited about it. <laughs> mm. um, I, I, the, the question was whether or not the family would be receptive to, to my existence. And in some cases with adoptees, um, the biological family doesn't want to be found, unfortunately, 
that, and that's really difficult. Um, my family has been very welcoming and loving. Um, the interesting thing, my dad never actually met me. So he, my, he knew that my mother was pregnant, um, but they separated before she was far along in her pregnancy. So he didn't know if she continued the birth, if I was a girl or a boy. So he never actually mm -hmm. met me. Um, when the, when the things, um, with regard to finding my father, um, is the language barrier, of course, mm -hmm. but, um, my, of, of my father and his two older brothers and three younger sisters, his youngest sister, my aunt Kyung, um, she knows English and she lives in the United States. So she's been translating our calls. And I've also got a good friend that's Korean American. Um, he translates on some of our calls. We do video chat through Kakao. Mm -hmm. And it and it's really it's really interesting talking to like, you know, three aunts and an uncle and my dad <laughs> all, at the, all at the same time. Um, but we've we've contacted pretty frequently um, and it, it feels nice. We compare features, mm. um, which is something that I only recently was able to do. Um, and I'm I'm pretty excited and looking forward to meeting everybody. You said you compared features. I guess that would be my that would have been my next question. Like, can you because I guess sometimes you don't immediately people won't immediately look like their mother. But when you see the whole True. family, you can see yourself in aunts and grandparents and it, it kind of spreads, doesn't it? Have, yes. you know, have you noticed that? How do how do the features? Is it in the eyes or their, their hair or? Um, I feel like I definitely have my one aunt's lips. That okay. was one of the things before before I before I got us to compare DNA before mm. I convinced her um, and I was comparing things. I was like, wow, I, I really, I have her lips. <laughs> and I tried to use that as, as a, as a point to her to, to say that we were in fact um, related, but it took a little convincing. Mm. Um, my father and I have the laugh lines that okay. are very similar. Mm. And I have another aunt with the nose and another aunt with, um, I've got a small widow's peak. So I've got mm -hmm. another aunt that's got one of those. And um, that's just amazing to be able to look into their faces and see these similarities. Some people might be listening to this rather than watching our conversation. I, I, I must say your laugh lines are fantastic. It's great to have oh. laugh lines. Despite this heavy conversation, you're genuine. You're gen generally just beaming throughout this. And I, I find it um, great. You're um, with your father, your father's been able to provide some details that were previously missing. And this includes your mother's hometown, even her name, if I'm correct, Igum Sun. Uh, what's happening with that part of the, the story there, Young He? Um, he doesn't remember her exact name. It's either Ikum Sun or Ikum Suk. Okay. So we're trying to look into both of those. Um, my father went, uh, when my father was dating my mother, they lived in Sodomun Gu. Mm -hmm. And so he's gone to the police there to see if he could find record of her. Um, but they were only willing to look under one name. We, we couldn't just do a, can you check every name? sort of situation. Um, and unfortunately, they weren't able to find her. Um, we're going to try to go back again with their second name and see if they'll give us another try. Um, they, they pretty much implied it would be impossible to find someone with that name mm -hmm. from that age range um, without doing a career wide search. And unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't seem to be really volunteering to do that. Um, so, so we've been doing that. I've also been, I've, got a social media presence set up on like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Um, so I've been sending tweets out with information um, ab about my mom and how to contact me in case anybody's heard anything or mm. if my mother herself sees something or hears something. Um, 
in um, so hopefully we're getting the word spread there. And then I was recently on Yonhop News TV mm. um, and they ran a, a couple minute segment um, about my search as well. So we have you know the information like where she lived, the, not the exact address, but the approximate area of where she lived in 1970. Um, she's from Chonin, Chungcheong province. Mm -hmm. um, her name as we've gone over. <clears throat> Um, and also my father's nickname for her at the time was mango. <laughs> That's quite cute. So, so <laughs> if she hears that, <laughs> yeah. that should, that should be, that should convince her. And, and you're coming, you, you've said a couple of times, but you're coming to Seoul, uh, or to South Korea in, in the autumn. What's, what do you hope happens in that trip? Or how, how long are you coming for? Is there a plan to try to find your mother or you're just going to be spending time with your father what happens on that trip young he when you come um i'll be arriving at the end of september and staying for three weeks um i'm going to well one yanhop news tv mm -hmm. is going to be following me to film a documentary um and so i really really hope that my mother if if we haven't heard anything by then i really hope that my mother will see that um so that's one of my hopes we're also going to go to her hometown Mm -hmm. and um, visit City Hall and the police station there to see if we can file a report. Um, I really look forward to just spending quality time with my family and getting to know them. Um, for, example, for example, we're going to go out to the countryside and visit the ancestral site. Um, and that's, I didn't have those relatives that long ago. So that's really meaningful for me. Um, we're going to do a lot of eating, <laughs> a lot of walking. <laughs> And I look forward to that. Um, and I also want to have more serious discussion with my dad about um, what his expectations are for me, because I'm actually the oldest child in the family. Um, but before I was found, um, my half brother mm. was was the oldest child. So I don't know exactly what comes with the territory in that regard. It must be lots of eating and walking, definitely in Korea. <laughs> it must be fascinating, despite being the stage of your life that you're at, sort of already a mother of two, perhaps I, I, the dates have gone, perhaps sort of late 40s by now, that all of a sudden the life is opening up these new chapters. You're going to visit, you will be going to visit um, uh, ancestral sites and things like that. <laughs> It, it must be, re we normally associate those things, I'm trying to say, young he with youth uh, and, and discovery and realizing that Santa Claus is not real. Sorry, listeners, but it, it, must be, it must be weird that this is all happening to you at this stage of your life, I'm trying to um, it's It's okay because I feel like in many respects, I've been a late bloomer. So I've done a lot of mm -hmm. things on uh, the somewhat late side of, of, of life and that's okay. Um, for example, some people be like, why'd you get married so late? And I'm like, who would just get married just because there's a timeline to me? Mm. You got to wait till you find the right person. Mm. Um, and the same with having children. I had to do things when I was ready to do them. Um, my upbringing was sort of unstable. Um, and there was a lot of dysfunction in my, in my family. Mm. Um, so that time was spent uh, being on the defensive and protecting myself rather than exploring who I was and discovering the world around me. So I've had to play catch up, um, just uh, figuring out who I am and, what I like and don't like in life and where, where I want to go with it. Mm. Um, so I don't know, it feels strangely on track <laughs> that things are coming at this time. Yeah. They happen when they're meant to happen. Perhaps I, exactly. I really, I, I'm really looking forward to not only seeing uh, the documentary you'll make with Yonhap, but also 
from my experience with the elder Korean members of our family, they're more likely to be watching Yonhap news than they are on Twitter or Facebook, if you know what I mean. So I, I yes. would hope that that actually has some pos. It opens up more windows that you know, elderly people are more likely to be watching the TV and see that documentary. Yes. What has the social media response been like for you? Because I, I mean, I came across your story. I believe it was on Twitter. I, I, I just saw this thing and I thought, wow, that's a, you know, it's not something I see amongst all the politics and all the noise and, and, and the, the negative stuff. I saw that and it, it kind of moved me and shocked me for a minute. What's been the social media response, Younghee, to your story? Um, it's been really good, but it, it's fleeting. So I've had some, I've been watching the statistics and there've been some pretty interesting spikes in terms of the, the foot traffic that's come to um, my website and people that are following me on Twitter and on YouTube. Um, it's really exciting because it, it's, it's literally been thousands of people. Mm. Um, so that every, I just think of it as every person that stops on my website has the potential to say something or know somebody um, that might know my mother. So that's, that's really encouraging. I had a, before my, my current website is Oma for USA. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be my old website was red pants, no shoes. And that was from what I was found and what I was wearing. Um, but I found over the years that that didn't translate well to a Korean audience. So more recently I switched to something that was a little simpler and easy to mm -hmm. remember. Um, uh, but I had a spike back in 2010 um, back then where the news stories first started catching wind of, wind of my search. Um, and there was a Korea Times article about me searching for my, for my birth family on Twitter. Um, and that was pretty exciting at the time too. But then, you know, over, over the years, it's been 12 years since then, um, things have died down, but there's still been a really good response and that's encouraging. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I genuinely hope the, the response continues. I think the documentary will, will really help. Um, do you have perhaps, Young here a message for anyone out there that might be experiencing similar issues in terms of identity, adoption, or their past? I, you said every situation is unique, but there might be some people listening to this that, that see that and, and find similarities in there. Um, is there any kind of message or things that could be said because you seem to be dealing with it quite well if I can say oh <laughs> um, well I've had a few years to, to deal with it uh, I think the important thing is everybody's journey is individual so you have to do what works for you don't let anybody else set the pace there are some people that may never explore their Korean roots and that's okay if that's what works for them mm. there are some people like me that want to have answers and of course I've delved into this over the years um, and found little pieces. It, it's been a, a really long search um, and found little bits and pieces here and there as, as I go. But it, it's really, it, it's what you want to make of it. And don't let anybody tell you other than that. Um, it's, um, there's going to be ups and downs in life and do the best you can to navigate them. Um, and uh, be there for yourself. Be there and show up for yourself, number one. Uh, uh, more than you can count on anybody else um and um eventually you know hopefully you'll find your way through mm. I, I i like it um and uh, and i hope the people listening do as well young he just I, I guess just before we ask this last question and bring this to a close is there anything that we've missed in your story is there anything about it that needs to be said or 
there's a, there's a lot out there about adoption. Um, so I won't get into some of the more political issues. Um, I, I guess one thing that I wanted to mention that's really important um, is that suicide rates for adopted people are four times higher than your average person. And that's really important for people to understand. Um, there's a lot of difficulties and sometimes not good support and resources for helping especially young people navigate through these identity issues. Mm. Um, and so for the people that can get past those tough times, um, I really commend their resilience and, and hope that other people will understand uh, that being adopted is pretty complicated. Mm. I, I've noticed uh, in the past, I don't know, a decade or so, that identity has become a really key part of uh, people's lives these days. I, I mean, I spend a lot of time with young 20 year olds at universities all the time. When I was growing up, all my professors and, and teachers, masters, they told us your identity doesn't matter. You treat everybody the same. That was the kind of ethos of the 80s and 90s when I grew up. But now there does seem to be this focus on your identity and who you are and where you're from. And so just hearing you explain that, how adopted people, and that puts this whole kind of extra pressure on them i guess and that yeah to commend that resilience is an important thing um i i just want to say thank you one more time young he for the you know for sharing it because it must not be easy but i think it's an important conversation and I, i've really enjoyed talking to you uh today um i end all of my conversations with the same question so this will be the, uh, the last question which is that um we're all in this world together. We're all going through this life. We all have different starting points and things like that. But what can we do to make life more valuable, either for us or for other people? Young He, what is the meaning of life? Um, I don't know about the meaning of life. That's a, <laughs> that's a tough question. But I do have a response to how we can provide more value to our lives and the lives of others. Mm. Um, and that is, I believe... The best way we can do that is to be the, become the best versions of ourselves. And by that, I mean, take good care of yourself, um, regardless of how your life began, either uh, before adoption or since it, we, we all have, uh, we don't have, we have very little say in, in what kind of family that we're raised in. Um, but do your best to overcome trauma and pain that you've, that you've encountered and um, observe life around you rather than instinctually react to it. It's important to teach yourself that you can always count on you, even when you can't, can't count on other people. Um, if you need counseling, get counseling. If you need to take medicine, take medication, get decent rest, get adequate physical exercise, eat healthily so you can be best equipped to handle whatever life throws at you. Um, make the effort to work through the negative things in your life um, and, and really feel them because you can't let them go until you process them. And you've got to do the hard work of processing them first. Um, don't hold on to these things and just let them eat you up inside. That it, It's just so destructive. Um, strive for balance in your life so you can experience the highs and cope with the lows. Um, when you're your best self, you can, you can give that to others. And that ideally is what makes the good in the world so worth it. It's one of the best answers I've had to that last question in a long time. And I think it's it's important because it feels like that you uh, you walk 
the walk and talk to you live by those values I, I guess having looked at your story and what you're doing this is not just John Malsum or nice expressions but it feels like that you are embodying that advice yourself I'm trying it's taken many years of therapy and introspection um but but I'm trying to you know really be here for my family and to be the best version of myself I can be yeah and long may it continue I'll do the same for my family um Young Hee thank you for this you're welcome thank you for your time Thank you.